It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. We have a real treat today. Today on the show, Professor Christopher Balding. Uh, is joining us. He is a China commentator and expert. He is an associate professor at the Fulbright University in Vietnam, spent a number of years at the HSBC Business School in Shenzhen, China. He follows Chinese financial markets and the economy. He's been a Bloomberg View contributor and has advised governments, central banks, and investors all around China. He also publishes regularly on his blog at Balding's World and of course, his academic papers. And he's super active on Twitter, where he posts a lot of really witty and funny and cutting stuff. And you should all follow him at Balding's World. And for what it's worth, Professor Balding, Xander and I are usually pretty down on Twitter. We do have our own biases. And being anti-Twitter is one of them. Your Twitter feed is definitely an exception. So I just want to make clear to listeners that we know that we're recommending a Twitter feed despite our Twitter general dislike. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. You know, I I try to do stuff outside of the norm of what's on Twitter. Well, that's what keeps it interesting, right? Well, thanks for joining us today, Professor Balding. Really appreciate it. I want to kick off the conversation asking a little bit of a broader general question about sort of the state of affairs of China in the world right now. Our on our last episode, we had a, it was a RAND researcher, uh, Mike Mazar, and he recently wrote that he thinks the term great power competition, which is being used more and more you know, in the U.S. national defense strategy, he said that that's not really an accurate description of the current global geopolitical landscape, even though people are using it more and more. And he thought that this term great power competition was really used to describe a very specific time in history, sort of late 19th century of different powers of similar strength competing with each other. And his argument is since China is still much weaker in a lot of ways than the US, that the term doesn't really apply. So we'll start there. How do you see the long-term relationship between the US and China evolving? Does it count as great power conflict? I think one of the things that is that is difficult for a lot of people, and, and I'll be honest, I, I fall into, I count myself in this camp, so I'm, this is not throwing versions at anyone, is we don't exactly know how to frame this. Because there are characteristics that are reminiscent of like a great power conflict. There are characteristics of this which are reminiscent of, say, Japan in the mid-80s. There are also characteristics of something like the USSR. There's also characteristics which would be reminiscent of, of, of say, Nazi Germany. So I think one of the, one of the problems is that many people struggle to come up with a, a type of conceptual framework for what we're dealing with here. 
myself, I'll be honest, I'm a little more partial and I, and I should emphasize I'm by no means wedded to this, whether it's the terminology or the, or the framework. I myself am, am, am more partial to something like a Cold War 2.0 type of uh, framework. And, and when I say Cold War 2.0, I, I understand that people, a lot of people will immediately recoil and say, well, it's not like the Cold War. And, you know, here's a couple of ways it's not. And so that's one of the reasons I say Cold War 2.0. But I think there's also some very important, very important characteristics that are very, very similar. And to me, the one that is probably the one or two that are the most salient are it is clearly, I think, an ideological conflict between the United States and China. Yes, there are there are absolutely economic characteristics that are you know more reminiscent of say like a Japan. However, I think fundamentally it's it's much more an ideological conflict. And I think the other thing building upon that is China is clearly exporting or building up uh, an authoritarian alliance. A lot of times when we think of well they're exporting communism, we think of they're starting. Uh, CCP offices in you know in countries around the world. When I think you know to you know to use a cliched phrase from phrase from Mao is that you know if it's if if it's uh, if it uh, kills mice like a cat, then it's then it, we can call it a cat. So if it's an authoritarian in Tehran, in Mozambique, and wherever it is, and they side with us at the UN, I don't really care if they're authoritarianism, totalitarianism, communist, whatever. It does the job. Um, and I think that is the, and you can kind of generally see the world kind of, kind of slowly coalescing into these two broader blocks. And so that's why I'm a little more partial to something like Cold War 2.0. But again, that, I'm by no means wedded to either that exact framework yet or that exact terminology. One of the questions I had, because we read your, read your paper or your blog post, at least on China exporting authoritarianism. And one of the things that, you know, I would, I would love you to elaborate on is, you know, if we look at places like Tehran or Iran and Mozambique, you know, Iran's authoritarianism started because of, you know, because of the, the Iranian revolution of 1979, Mozambique was a, a rebellion that, that brought about a dictator. And I don't see China's fingers in the bringing about of this, which is how I would originally interpret something like exporting authoritarianism, like you're sending it to a place that doesn't yet have it. I can certainly see this alliance building going on. So I think long story short, when you say exporting authoritarianism, can you elaborate what you mean by that? Are there any places where China has brought about authoritarianism in the world? I think uh, so. When, so when I say exporting authoritarianism, to the best of my knowledge, and I've never heard anything to the contrary, I don't think China has an office, you know, that's it's called export authoritarianism, you know, right. United Front. <laughs> I, I don't think they, they have something like that. I think they're looking around the global landscape saying, who are countries I can easily work with that will easily support my position on XYZ, uh, whether it's to take on the United States, whether it is to look the other way on Xinjiang, things like that. And so one of and, and so they're looking around this and so they're looking around, they're going, oh, well, hey, here's some authoritarianisms. You know, if I if I send their kids to school in Switzerland or something like that, you know, I can probably I can probably get their support on something. To the best of my knowledge, in I don't know, all 220 countries off the top of my head, maybe Zimbabwe might be the closest thing where you could say that they were more actively involved in, you know, pushing some type of shift in government. I, de I don't know where there, there's been cases um, where they've actively, let's say, overthrown a government or something like that. They have, however, very, very clearly 
let's say, built up strongmen. Or in weak democracies, they have helped prop up, let's say, leaders that are in democracies, but maybe very weak democracies and not necessarily democratically inclined. And so what was it? Two years back, the cases of Malaysia and was it the Maldives, I believe it was, were very instructive where they thought they had very friendly, sympathetic governments and they had lent a lot of money to on BRI. And all of a sudden, those governments were tossed out. And so, especially with Malaysia, they worked to rectify that situation. They had to take some smaller contracts, but they, they fixed that. And so I, I don't think it's necessarily that they're seeking to, say, foment revolution around the world as it is build up an author- a reliably authoritarian bloc and, and, and support those authoritarian strongmen. And do you think some of China's Belt and Road initiatives are going to be effective in that in that sense? Or at this point, I mean, because, for example, in Kenya, the Mombasa port deal, some of those details leaked and there's some popular backlash against what was perceived to be, you know, China stepping on, stepping on Kenyan sovereignty and similar thing in Sri Lanka. Do you think that the, those types of initiatives are going to backfire or they will actually help China long term export this at their authoritarianism? I think, you know, to, to borrow the, the, the wonderful Chinese saying, it's, it's, it's too soon to tell. One of the things that you can see very clearly is that a lot of that lending, you know, just overwhelmingly speaking, BRI lending goes to non-democracies or very weak democracies. So that gives us a very clear indication very early on what is going on. And then you look at a lot of the details there, you know, in, in all of these case, in all of these, in an enormous, I shouldn't say all, but I should say in an enormous number of these cases, we either have actual tangible evidence of enormous corruption, or we have very strong evidence of corruption. So one of the things is, is that it seems very clear that part of this is a, is, you know, they're killing many birds with one stone. So I don't think this is the reason. But one of the things that seems very clear is that they are seeking to very much win friends and influence people and the type of people that they see themselves working best with are authoritarians. And so if that means propping them up, to, to basically extend their rule, gain friends, they think that they can at least, uh, at, at the very least, if there is a change of government, that they can at least with their pocketbook or other means get the, the, the subsequent leader to follow their line in a variety of different ways. And what, what do you see China ultimately getting out of building this network of authoritarians? I think my gut is sort of saying that authoritarians of different ideological ilks don't tend to get along all that well historically. They can't, you know, take mass military action together. They can't, you know, if you think of like the Second World War, the the Stalinist authoritarians and the fascist authoritarians sort of hated each other. So I'm wondering if long-term aim with building this network is primarily economic or if it's trying to rewrite some of the rules of the world order, like in the World Trade Organization, or if it's a military, you know, a military alliance of some sort against potential U.S. or allied encroachment, et cetera? I think the two most direct things that they're hoping to gain are basically, well, I should say probably three, influence in these countries around the world. China has talked, you know, about um, it is now a great power and it needs to assume that mantle and it needs to have more influence around the world. And so this is, this is, this is one avenue to accomplish that. I think the second issue would be finance and economic, and there's a, there's a variety of sub-issues underneath that. But whether it's uh, potentially exporting surplus capacity or whether it is uh, turning all of these other countries into U.S. dollar surplus countries that are then paying China back with U.S. dollars, 
as China is not really a, a surplus country anymore, um, but they still need that, that dollar surplus, I think that's, a, that's another very tangible issue. I think the third issue, um, which we've already seen in, 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 with increasing relevance, is that these are countries that can be counted on to do Beijing's bidding, whether it's writing a letter of support um, to the United Nations about Xinjiang. We've seen that happen, whether it is potentially gaining support in the United Nations or other international venues for some of what uh, China wants to do. And this kind of circles back to the first point. One of the things I think a lot of people miss is that China is not just saying, hey, we're a bigger, more important country now, but they want to rewrite the, the rules of the international order. They don't feel that they were effectively consulted when these rules were being written. They don't believe the rules that are, let's say, generally speaking, um, promoting an international liberal order are rules that they approve of um, or like. And they want to ultimately, I think, uh, rewrite those rules. And they need to build up a coalition to do that. And that's part of what they're doing. Clearly, China wants to change things a little bit, but they're they're facing their own big challenges at home, right? You were on China Econ Talk. Pot, the, there was a podcast last year, and it was a really good conversation. So listeners, check out China Econ Talk if you want to listen to it. And one of the things that you mentioned that's changed since you started studying China when you moved to China the first time is the sheer amount that's being written about the country just on all sorts of different topics. And clearly, one of these, one of the big focuses are people watching its economy, financial system, how leveraged it is, how much money the CPC is spending trying to keep the state-owned enterprises propped up and keep uh, employment as plentiful as possible. And until, I guess, somewhat recently, the relative lack of transparency into, into what types of debt instruments were even out there in the financial system. And China has a history of collapsing in sort of on its own weight for one reason or another. So... Having lived there for a while, do you have a sense for how bad things really are on the ground in China? I mean, what would what would a breaking point look like that actually results in some sort of crisis or conflict? And how how does the U.S.'s trade war impact any of that? So this is my own. A, a couple of years ago, I was having a conversation with somebody who is they know so much about the Chinese economy. You know, they're one of the people I learn from, and I I, I get to pick their brain about what's going on. And, and I was. I was telling them, I'm not convinced Beijing understands the depth of the problems that they're facing with, with the debt issue. And they said, oh, no, no, they, they understand very clearly. They told me two things which, which really stuck with me and have really framed my opinion ever since. And I think you see this dynamic playing out. And they put it, the first point they made was this. As they said, China's goal is to become Japan, not Thailand. Hmm. And the basic point is, if it's Thailand and there's a crisis or a hard landing, it's the show's over for the CCP. Okay, they they string up uh, they string up Chairman Xi like like Mussolini. Okay, it does not end well for the CCP if China goes the way of Thailand. What they do will be very happy to to engineer is that it turns into a grinding long term mess which is kind of what we have with uh, Japan, where now I think uh, the Bank of Japan now owns something like 50% of all financial assets, and they're, they're, you know, they're continuing to buy Japanese financial assets, essentially monetizing all of those, all of those assets. And I think that's, that's what you're seeing. The second point that they made is they said, if there ever is a crisis, and I'm, I'm going to use some of my own phrasing here, it will be the last possible outcome. And what I mean by that is they will, they will be digging up bodies, pulling gold from, from grandma's teeth before they allow a type of crisis. 
there is no bailout too big that they will not write the check for to prevent a crisis or a hard landing from happening. And I think that's pretty much what you're, you're seeing. So if you see banks go bad, they get bought by bigger banks. And, you know, there's more banks that are, that are on the radar for potentially going bad that need to be bought out. And so they will do everything possible to prevent something from the CCP having to face, you know, the, the 10, 20 years of their bad economic policy from coming home. And so a lot of times we think of it, well, real estate is overvalued, so it's going to be like 2008. I, I think that's very unlikely for a, for a host of economic and financial reasons. Okay, well, if it's not like that, then it's going to be like, you know, Thailand, because, you know, they have a lot of, you know, debt levels have risen really fast. Well, I think that's unlikely for a host of financial reasons. And so one of the things I do think you see happening more and more, and this is a direct result of all of these issues that we're talking about, is that China is turning more and more on its inward. It is, um, it is becoming more and more closed off. If you look at, you know, just as a simple example, if you look at Chinese import numbers, they're down across the board. People say, oh, well, it's the trade war. No, what you're really seeing is, is, is pretty clearly is import substitution policy. And, you know, the clearest example of this is, is iron ore export. China can produce large amounts of iron ore, but it's lower quality and it's higher priced. And so it, it typically costs, let's say, 15 to 20% more than Australian iron ore um, delivered to Shanghai. But there's been a big shift towards domestically produced iron ore um, so that they don't have to spend valuable foreign exchange uh, reserves. And so these are the types of things that you should expect to see more and more is that China essentially becomes more and more closed off so that they have less and less risk of, let's say, some type of financial crisis or hard landing. Because if they're internally closed, if they're essentially closed off to the outside world, they have a much greater probability to catch any of those problems and prevent those things from happening. You mentioned overinflated real estate, and this is something that I've, I've looked into a little bit. And it's hard to get a sense of how analogous the, the threat of inflated hard asset prices in China poses to that financial system relative to the U.S., right? The comparisons don't really map one-to-one. And I, I remember, I forget what research paper I read this in, but I remember uh, it was this chart that showed real estate price growth over like 10 years. And it just looked like a roller coaster would go up and down and up and down and up and down. And the thing that I, I kind of took away from that is it seems like certainly since 2008, the PBOC has been able to manage those asset prices at least somewhat. And I don't know if it's becoming a more precarious balance, but is the close tie between the Chinese financial system and its real estate market really as precarious as we would think it would be if we saw that in a more free economy like in the U.S.? And, and, so, and so this is, this is why I say you know, we always need to be careful with simplistic analogies like 2008. The simple answer is yes and most definitely no. Not, not to hedge, but that, that's the reality of it. So on a asset price basis, so just to give you an idea, the basic metric that mo- the economists will widely use is housing price to income. And, and what that means is, you know, how, what is the average income in an area and what is the price of housing? Because, you know, people ultimately have to pay for housing with money that they make at their job. And so that's a very simple way to do it. And so just to give you a broad range, you know, probably five to eight is, is, is a good range. Meaning if you, and I'm going to use simple numbers here, but if you make $100,000 a year, you, you should be able to buy a house that is between five and $800,000. That should be, the, that should be the, the basic range for a large sample area, whether it's a city, country, et cetera. 
and china by you know by by many metrics is 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 well above that you know you you could make an argument it's it's upwards of 10 to 15 certain you know metro areas and tier 1 and tier 2 cities are you know as high as 30 or, or 50 depending on you know a specific metro area and so this is where you go wow these these are these are really crazy numbers so yes on an asset price basis, the, the asset prices of homes in China are wildly out of balance from where the fundamentals say that they should be. However, and this is where it gets a little bit tricky, because believe it or not, one of the things you see in markets is as prices go up for a lot of assets, whether it's the stock market, whether it's the bond market, whether it's real estate, things like this, you typically see what we what we call you know momentum movement, okay? So that if prices start going up, other people say, oh wow, the price is going up. I want to get into that market. And so one of the things that you see is that as prices go up, volumes increase in that market, meaning more people are buying into that market. Well, one of the things that you've seen is you've almost seen the exact opposite in China, okay? Let me give you an example. In the United States, prior to the global financial crisis, the average turnover of a house in the United States was once every six years. Meaning if you had a hundred houses and you started at the first house, it would take you six years to buy all those houses and then get back to the first house, okay? In China, you have many cities which are actually above a hundred year turnover rate. Meaning that if there's a hundred houses, there's one house being bought every year. So that it's gonna take a hundred years to get all the way back to that first house before it's sold again, wow. okay? So that means that nobody's buying these houses, okay? That's the important part. Nobody's buying these houses. So the economic term that we say is that the, 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 the market price for housing in China is being set at the extreme margin, okay? Meaning, you know, if, if you're talking a turnover rate of six years, we know that there's a lot of people buying houses, Okay. If you say that there's a turnover rate of 100 years, that means almost nobody is buying houses. So the market price is being set by one transaction. Okay. Whoa. Does that make sense? And so even in, even in markets where you have higher turnover rates in China, you're looking at turnover rates of, of 30 plus years. Meaning if you have 100 houses, you're selling three houses a year. Okay. So this is, so when we talk about these prices, it's important to keep in mind that nobody is buying, there, there's, these, there's almost nobody buying these houses. And so one of the things that you've seen is that debt household ratios are now, um, as a percentage of household income, are actually higher in China than they are in the majority of developed countries. Okay? So Chinese, just to give you a, a perspective, Chinese income levels are on par with countries like Mexico, Brazil, Russia, okay? But Chinese debt levels are on par or actually above countries like the United States. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, so what this is telling us is that Chinese households have gone into extreme levels of debt to fund those housing purchases. But there's two other issues here that I would raise, and, and not to get uh, overly technical, but one of the things is, is that when we look at whether you're a banker or you know, looking at a, at a mortgage or whether you're an economist, one of the key issues you look at is something called loan-to-value. And all loan-to-value, all that means is if, uh, if your house is worth a million dollars, what is the outstanding loan value of that house? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and the reason that matters is, is let's assume there's a 20% decline in the, in, in the value of a house. Okay. Let's just assume you have a house that's worth a million dollars and your mortgage is $800,000. Okay. If the price of housing goes down by 20%, it's now worth $800,000. You now own a house that has no effective equity in the house. The loan is worth the same as the house. Okay. But let's assume in another scenario that you only owe $100,000 on that house on that million dollar house. And so if the price goes down to $800,000, you're still okay because you only owe $100,000 on that house. Make sense? Yep. Okay. So if you look at the Chinese economy, if you look at the housing stock in China, the housing stock in China probably has a loan to value ratio of about maybe 15% at this point. I haven't run these numbers in about six to nine months, but you're maybe looking at a loan to value ratio of 15%. What that means is that if the Chinese economy is represented by a million dollar house, that means Chinese as a whole only owe $150,000 on that house. Okay. So we need to be careful in not thinking of it as a 2008 style financial crisis, where if the value goes down, all, all this, these huge amount of loans are going to go bust. If you've bought within the past couple of years, you're going to be under enormous stress. You're, you're probably, it's probably going to wipe you out. But because those turnover ratios that I mentioned earlier have been so low, the majority of the population is probably not going to face financial distress for those, for those mortgages because their loan-to-value ratio is so low, okay? Gotcha. However, what will happen, and this is, this is the key issue, and this is why the PBOC has been, has been so careful to manage those, those housing prices. You even hear reports of local governments setting price floors that they won't allow a transaction um, on a house uh, unless it's above a certain price. The reason that matters, though, is it is enormous, in, of enormous importance to so- social stability, not to use a Chinese cliche, but it is in, of enormous importance to social stability. People often ask me, well, what would cause people to you know, uh, riot on the streets? And I say, you want to see mass riots throughout China, go on CCTV and announce that home prices in China are overvalued by 50% and there's been a unilateral cut in price of 50%. There will be riots on the street before six o'clock. Okay. That is of enormous, enormous social importance to keep those prices elevated so that people do not riot. It is not uncommon to hear reports from China where a developer will build a complex. They'll sell 60, 75% of the units they will have they will struggle to sell the remaining units they'll cut the prices by 20% to sell those remaining units and the people that already bought units will come out and riot 
to demand a price cut or something, some sweetener to, to go away. So it is of enormous social importance, even if the financial importance isn't what we think of as like a 2008 type of situation. Question from me. So I've I actually studied China quite extensively in college. And had, so it's, you know, 15 years of interest for me. And one of the things I never was able to put two and two together on is I think it is widely accepted among scholars of China. And I've heard many a time that, you know, if there's a hard landing, if, you know, if X economic crisis happens, there will be riots, you know, Xi Jinping will be strung up like Mussolini. And I know that over, you know, over its long history, China does have a history of, of like peasant rebellions and such, but it's, it's kind of hard to grok what's the actual frequency of that because it's such a long history. So what is it, what is it about China that makes it so obvious to to everyone but me that a financial crisis would cause you know mass social unrest in the nation? I think there's a combination of of factors, and I'm not, and and I'll just tell you one, and this this is just from my own observation from having lived in China. One of the things I, I saw in China was I almost never saw. Chinese people get angry. But when they did, it, it, was, it was an amazing spectacle to behold how they would get angry. And so I think one of the things is, is there, there's this sense that there's kind of like this, you know, they talk about stability because when those demons are unleashed in China in different ways, it, it, it doesn't end well, whether it's on a societal basis or whether it's on a personal basis, watching somebody, you know, melt down in the mall. And so I think that's one of the things that is, that is kind of um, being referred to. I think there's another over, overlooked factor here, and that is this. What you typically see across countries is that China is right about the point where citizens start looking around and saying, wait a minute, there's a better way for society to work. I want more things out of life. And I think we see this in different ways in China, whether it is the for lack of a better term, complaints about the 996 work attitude uh, at tech companies, whether it's increasing pressure to clean up air pollution that, that you see um, in Chinese cities, whether it's protests about uh, corruption, there, there's, there's pressure on the government to be a better citizen. People start demanding rights. And this is not unique to China. That We see this very commonly at about this level of income. You know, it might be a little bit more, it might be a little bit less. But at about this general level of income, people start looking around and going, wait a minute, I want more out of life than just having my basic needs met that I can feed myself. You know, I want clean water. I want, you know, a responsive government. I want these other things. And there's a lot of pressure on, on China to deliver that more and more. And I think one of the things you've seen is you've seen China, or more accurately, the CCP, kind of almost double down because they, they feel these pressures and they, they realize that if they start yielding to those pressures, it's a very slippery slope towards some type of democratic representation. And coupled with the economic pressures they're, they're facing, I don't think it's crazy to suggest that the CCP is kind of anticipating both the economic and political pressures. And that's why you've seen over the past two to three years, You've seen such a ramp up in the surveillance state that is, is, is so commonly talked about in China because of all of these pressures coming together right now. Speaking of pressures, there's one place that they are 
boiling over pretty aggressively. And obviously Hong Kong is an island unto itself in many ways, but we would be irresponsible to not at least get your insight on what's going on in Hong Kong. And and for for some disclosure to our listeners, it seems that you know you are in support of the Hong Kong protesters, which I'm not saying to say that that you know <laughs> that that is a problem or or a bad thing at all. But I just want to you know I just want to be clear that like you've you've got a bit of a horse in the race at least. And what I'd like to learn about the Hong Kong protests is I think like you know the basic facts that it was originally an extradition law that that they were protesting against that seemed to have gotten withdrawn, but it's clearly escalated since then. And what I'm wondering since you've been following it so quickly are, you know, one, what are the goals of the Hong Kong protesters at this point as of September 2nd, 2019? And is there any chance at all of them being able to achieve them? So if I can step back just for, you know, like a lot of things for, for one minute, I think, I think one of the things to provide a, a little bit of background is that, is that this does not come in a vacuum. It was you know, the, the extradition law was, for lack of a better term, the straw that broke the camel's back. For many years, there's been a, a large amount of frustration over uh, over mainland uh, meddling in Hong Kong in, in different ways. Uh, you know, and I think even a lot of financial firms, which, which is really, you know, my more my area of expertise, finance and economics, there's been in, increasing frustration about mainland meddling. You know, one example was is, is there was increasing talk that, you know, Hong Kong courts are treating things like contracts and free speech in financial markets much more like they do on the mainland, where you can't sell short, you can't publish critical research reports, things like that. There's a whole host of uh, societal issues about increasing censorship. And especially after 2014, there was this sense that if we don't take a stand now, we will not ever be able to take a stand again. And so I think one of the things to to frame this issue better is there's this saying among the Hong Kong protesters, if we burn, you burn, because they they really view this as their last stand. If they don't get some concessions now, it's essentially all over. And so I think it's very important to understand that kind of framing for a lot of the behavior that we're seeing. So the Hong Kong protesters, and, and I'll be honest, I forget the five they have five very specific demands. It's universal suffrage. It's no calling the protesters rioters. Um, it, a board of inquiry is a third one. And I forget the other two off the top of my head, but there, there are five very straightforward demands about that. And I think it's, it's, it's pretty clear at this point that there is absolutely zero chance that Beijing is going to yield to those, uh, to those demands. Well, you, t- you talked a little bit about sort of the the creeping surveillance state in in mainland China and how, for folks who maybe aren't as familiar with it, they sort of rolled out a lot of the stuff in Xinjiang, and then the social credit system is becoming more and more ubiquitous as they have more trials in different cities. But in terms of sort of the CBC's, uh, maybe you can call it proclivity towards more and more surveillance. I want to I want to pivot the conversation a little bit to this paper that you published. I think it was in July on Huawei and its links to the Communist Party of China. And for folks who who haven't followed this issue, uh, Huawei is really advanced in certain ways in terms of their ability to offer 5G services. They've really invested in this a lot, and a lot of countries in the West are looking to Huawei to build out some of their 5G infrastructure. And the concern in the U.S. 
is, well, Huawei is just another state-affiliated company. So clearly there's a risk of surveillance and espionage here. And I, I think what was a little surprising to me was how controversial this paper that you published turned out to be. Because in, in my mind, maybe there wasn't any definitive proof, but it seems pretty obvious that the Communist Party instills advisors and state-owned enterprises in China, and they largely get the direction from the Communist Party. So what, what were some of the findings that you found in your paper, and why was this considered as controversial as it was? So, so basically, just to give your readers an idea of, of what this paper was about, I was given a cache of many millions of CVs uh, from Chinese job seekers. And out of that cache, we narrowed it down to roughly 55, 60,000 CVs from uh, various Chinese sites that come back to what we believe we, we our, our final our final data cleaning and et cetera is, st- is still ongoing, comes back to about uh, 30,000 unique uh, individuals. And these people were, let's say, mid to mid-senior Huawei engineers, coders, salespeople, things like this. And so basically what we did in, the C- in this paper was go through the CVs to see if there's any evidence, linkages between uh, Huawei and Specifically in this paper, Chinese military slash intelligence apparatuses of the Chinese state, specifically the PLA and MSS, which is Chinese Ministry of State Security. You might see it referred to as the, the, the Ministry of National Security in some areas in, sometimes, and, and which is the primary intelligence, external intelligence gathering arm. That was the focus of the paper. And so... We basically looked, are there, are there these links? And so there were a couple of key findings. In the paper, we decided, or actually I decided, the, the, the best, the best to, to focus on a, a very select number of CVs, primarily because um, we didn't want to reveal too much information. Um, I was withholding a large amount of information very purposely and willfully. And if people want to criticize me for not revealing all of the information, um, et cetera, that we have, then, you know, I'm willing to take that. I don't, that doesn't bother me in the least because we were withholding a lot of information for very specific reasons. And so basically what I did is I, is I took three CVs specifically. We had a couple hundred uh, to choose from, and I chose three that were, I thought, most representative in different ways or illustrated different things. And basically all I did, to be honest, was rewrite their CVs with different names of people, different names of universities, things like that. But the information that is in that paper directly is basically just a rewriting of of somebody's CV because I I did not, I I was uh, attempting to hide their personal information so that whether it was China or whether it was some other foreign government wouldn't know specifically who I was, uh, who I was referring to. And I think uh, one of the things that was is most salient for, for our specific conversation about China was there were an enormous amount of CVs. Um, and I couldn't tell you the, uh, the, the number, but there were an enormous number of CVs where Huawei employees were working directly with the domestic intelligence um, agency, the PSB, uh, Public Security Bureau, to monitor, to censor, to track all of this type of information, but that was not the focus of the research or, or, or the paper. might be doing that in, in, in subsequent work, but that was not the focus. But I can tell you that there was an enormous, uh, there was any clear and enormous linkages between the PSB and Huawei. And we'll, of course, be posting this paper on the show notes for those who want to go read it. 
Yeah, it's a heck of a read, much in the same way that Xander described. My perspective was this kind of seems obvious, yet the level of, or the, the conclusion seems obvious of the level of detail is is quite profound. And I think one of the things I want to I want to circle back on is you know it is the case that the values of the Chinese state and you know Western states in general seem quite different. You mentioned Cold War 2.0. There's there's definitely I, th- I think it's not too controversial to say that a lot of the value systems that these two nations have are somewhat incompatible. They have different visions of the international order and what it should be and what is most beneficial to them. And, you know, to have you speculating for a bit, do you think that the United States and China are careening towards some sort of real conflict as China flexes its muscles, moves out, you know, tries to build a bunch of islands in the South China Sea and claim them, exports authoritarianism, as you say. And is that conflict, you know, is there a path by which the United States and the West can accommodate China and incentivize it or or direct it more towards a compatible, you know, a, a current like Western world order compatible system? I know you mentioned a lot about in your paper on foreign policy, which will also post using bilateral free trade deals to incentivize you know, better human rights practices. My guess would be that China is a little too big for that. I want to get your thoughts here. So I think one of the things that I think was was very in, in, enlightening for me, and there's two things here I don't think get nearly enough coverage, generally speaking, is Chairman Xi is deeply cognizant of the fact that the uh, the Soviet Union collapsed in its 13th fifth-year plan. And China is in its 13th fifth-year plan now. And he believes that the collapse of the Soviet Union was arguably the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. That communism and that they made, the Soviet Union made mistakes by deciding to liberalize at all. And so I think if you if you understand that about Xi, a lot of what we're seeing becomes much more explainable. It becomes much more explainable to say, oh, this is why Chairman Xi is pushing so hard to have a surveillance state, to have deep and profound censorship mechanism. There's, there's a very different calculus at play in the risks that he sees compared to what I think most Western observers look at when they see China. You know, they look at, well, hey, there might be economic stagnation if they continue turning, turning in on themselves. She sees a greater risk of opening up and the risks that come with liberalization and what would happen to the CCP. And so once you frame it in that particular light, a lot of what we're seeing unfold and the policy decisions that they're making become much more apparent. You know, a lot of people say, well, the PLA is never going to walk into Hong Kong because that would turn them into a pariah state. Well, I think she sees it as a much more profound and fundamental threat to the CCP to let Hong Kong remain liberal and open. You know, one of the things is, is like, you know, the, the, the real problem with uh, the booksellers a few years back in Hong Kong that got kidnapped was not that they were making money, was not that they were any type of international embarrassment to Xi. Most people, most people had never heard of these, these booksellers selling these, these uh, very lightly sourced tabloid gossip books about uh, Chinese leadership. 
the biggest purchasers of those books were other senior CCP officials that were buying these things and taking them back to the mainland. And so there's, it's, it's a very different and fundamental calculus that is taking place. And once you frame it in that light, all of a sudden it becomes much more apparent where they see, where they see the risks. And this leads directly into the second point, which I think most people just for various reasons don't want to talk about, and that there's numerous reasons, is it is fundamentally, and this is why I lean towards some type of phrasing like Cold War 2.0, is it is very fundamentally a clash of values. And we all can dispute, uh, we, we, we all know who Trump is, we all know some of the problems that might be there, some of our complaints about Trump, but you know, President Trump, you know, he may only be in office another year at, at, at most another, an, another five years. We don't know how long Chairman Xi is going to be in office. And even if Chairman Xi is, is going to be in office, the likelihood that, chi- that uh, the next leader is going to turn uh, China into a, a social democracy, I think is fanciful at best. And so it is fundamentally a, a clash of values between China and the United States and too many people want to talk of it as, oh, it's economic competition. Oh, it's great power competition. No, it is fundamentally a, a, a clash of values between authoritarianism and open democracies. So I, I want to I actually ask a little bit more about sort of what the U.S. has been doing now. And this is, I think this is the last question we have for the day, but maybe it'll be a little bit of an open-ended one. For repeat listeners to our show, they'll know that we do what we can to really not take positions on individual leaders or individual issues, and we just try to present different sides of it. And that's been, you know, a challenge to say the least with the current president, just because he is so divisive in a lot of ways and kind of encourage you, encourages you to sit on one side of the aisle or, or the other in respect to him. But it seems like what, what the fallout from that has been a lot of the times is sort of a reflexive antagonism to his foreign policy, even if sometimes, you know, you could argue that some sort of action is needed. And I know you write a lot about the need to discuss the costs in confronting China because some costs will be inevitable and it's no longer a cost-free initiative. So if we look at where the U.S. stands right now, what the Trump administration has been doing uh, vis-a-vis China, if, if there's any way to sort of strip out the idea that Trump is president right now, how would you rate the U.S.'s actions, its approach to China, do you think it'll change a lot with the next administration? Or is this sort of, well, the red line metaphor isn't a good one, but is, is this sort of more aggressive pushback necessary and likely to continue in some way? So I think one of the things, so there, there's a lot of things there, and let me try and hit all the thoughts that I have in my head. So one of the things, and, and I, just, I just wrote about this the other day, but one of the things is, as I think you, you, you said it well, is there is this reflexive, if Trump says it, I'm going to take the opposite position. And, and let me emphasize, in, in, in many ways, I understand that, that initial instinct, okay? However, one of the things is, is, is that I would always caution is take a step back, look at what the bigger picture is, look at what the constraints are, look at some of these different things that are going on in the world rather than just reflexively taking the opposite position of whatever Trump tweets. And the, the best example I, I, would, I would use is this. So a lot of the critics of the Trump administration have said, well, if, if he would do more at the WTO, if he would have joined TPP, and if he would work with allies, then we would be in a radically different position and, we, and China would change its tune. And I, I think if you break each of those proposed solutions down, and I should emphasize, all of those three things I am 
you know, fundamentally in favor of. At the same time, however, I think it's pretty clear none of those things really move the needle. None of those things really change where we would be at, at this point in time. And let me give you an example, you know, TPP, okay, as, as the great example. Should the Trump administration have joined TPP, in my opinion? Yes, they should have. I think TPP is, is a good idea. I think it's something the United States should do. Is it going to change anything? No, it's not. The optics are bad. The reality is, is almost irrelevant. And let me tell you why, just as a, for a couple points. First of all, the economic impact by any estimation was going to be essentially irrelevant. The primary reason is, is that most of the trade barriers between the United States and, and other TPP members with a couple of countries, countries like Vietnam, most of those trade barriers were already almost close to, close to like 1% or 2% in most cases were a couple of uh, areas like government procurement where they were going to remove non-tariff barriers. But fundamentally, the economic impact was essentially going to be almost zero. So to say that the economic impact is going to be zero and it's going to have any major impact on, China, on China's behavior seems fanciful at best. Also, we, we, we have a baseline because TPP excluding the United States has already gone into effect. Okay, So China's behavior hasn't changed because TPP has gone into effect. So saying, well, if the U.S. joins TPP, that's going to materially change Chinese economic policy, again, just doesn't seem realistic. And you could make, the, you know, you could make very similar arguments about you know, like the WTO and allies. Again, these are things that should be done. It's not going to materially change Chinese behavior. And I think one of the things that, is, that, that a lot of people misunderstand are, are two specific issues. First of all, very similar to what we've talked about so far about the risks that she sees, you know, liberalization, things like that. They're, they're approaching economic policy very much the same way in the sense that we're not going to liberalize our economy because we see the risks to liberalizing our economy as removing the central importance of the CCP politically in the first, in the first point. And then the second point is the Chinese economy is being so fragile that any liberalization runs enormous economic and financial risks. Okay, so this tells us that essentially we know how China is going to behave on economic policy. And so trying to persuade them and trying to negotiate with them to do things like open up their economy does not seem like it's going to have the material impact that we think it is. You know, you, you will hear a lot of the critics of, you know, from from like the Obama administration talk about this. And look, I uh, I believe that the Obama administration people were, you know, fundamentally well-meaning people. I think they were fundamentally wrong on a lot of uh, the policy. You know, they, they will say, well, we got this agreement, we got this agreement. And you can see that within, you know, six months, six months to two years of signing those, you know, whatever agreements they, they had, that China was effectively ignoring those agreements. So I think it requires, first of all, a much more broader-based focus on the threats of the Chinese economy, the threats that China as a nation-state poses to the United States. One of the terms you heard the FBI director use was a whole-of-society threat. And you've heard intelligence agencies around the world, in Europe, Australia, other countries talk about being overwhelmed and the number of intelligence threat far outpacing anything they, they, they saw during the Cold War. So I think it's important to note that, you know, we can maybe say whole of society threat may not be the most accurate or it might be a, an excessively threatening terminology. 
let's at least for now accept that that is the general type of threat that I think many countries are seeing. And I think that this frames the the issue differently. And and what I mean by that is if if it was, for instance, a dispute between the United States and China over Chinese aluminum subsidies, it would be very understandable to view the Trump administration's reaction as a gross overreaction. However, if you if you view it in this light of a more of a whole of society or whatever type of terminology we want to use about the type of threat that China might pose, it becomes a more understandable type of reaction. And I think one of the things that has been going on quietly, and I will say to, to their credit, even though they didn't act upon it, you saw in the last, let's say, two years of the Obama administration, you saw an increasing number of executive agency reports on some of the threats that China was posing. Um, and again, they didn't act on it uh, really, but they at, least be, they at least began to talk much more forthrightly about those threats. And I think you're seeing the Trump administration act much more upon, upon those threats. So the question then becomes, well, is the Trump administration taking understandable uh, policy approach to China um, directly. And my, my personal opinion is, is that I think there are a range of potential policy approaches to China that they could take. And I think I can at least tolerate their, their tariff approach because fundamentally any approach to China that is going to challenge and confront them in a, in a meaningful way is going to incur material economic and financial cost. And what I mean by that is, let's assume we took the WTO approach, we filed a, a flurry of lawsuits, and let's assume that in very short order, you know, uh, within two years, the United States had won uh, th this flurry of lawsuits against them. The only thing that then happens is, is that the U.S. has the right to impose tariffs on China. Okay, so that's what you've won. You, you've, you've legally won the ability to do this if China doesn't change their approach. And I think one of the things you've seen is that is that China, you know, and, you know, you've got a case from when China joined the WTO in 2000, one of the things they agreed to do was allow international payment processors like Visa and MasterCard into their market. We're still waiting on Visa and MasterCard being allowed into the Chinese market. So just to say you've won a WTO case against China really doesn't mean a whole lot. You know, we've won IP cases against China, and we still have massive IP problems with, with China. So you really haven't won a whole lot if you, if, you, if you follow that path. So fundamentally, you have to say, which economic and financial costs do I want to incur to challenge China? Okay. There's a range of costs that you, that you could do that, that you could use to pursue that. Because I think fundamentally, this idea that we can persuade them to open up their markets, we can persuade them to be better actors, simply does not hold, does not hold water if we look at the past really 20 years since they've joined the WTO. And so this leads us to the, uh, to the path. What economic costs am I willing to impose and accept? Tariffs are one of those economic uh, tools that we could use to impose costs. There's a range of other ones that we could accept. Tariffs at least seems like one of the ones that we, could, that we could use because the only question past that is which segments of society are going to impose those costs upon. All right. I want to send you off 
Professor Balding, so that you can get on with your Labor Day and actually so that I can run screaming and so that our listeners don't sit there going, oh, gosh, how long is this episode? My commute is long <laughs> over at this point and I need to get back to work. And of course, that's the problem with these things is, is we've got even more questions that we didn't get to and we could talk about this all day. And we may need to just bring you back on because I think there may be a lot of stuff that we want to follow up with. So I might just break this into two. But given that, uh, Professor Balding, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for taking your time on your day off. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.